Well, good morning. So over the last couple of weeks, we've just been following the schedule as previously planned. God knew before uh, we ever planned this series out of 1 Peter that we'd be doing a unique series where we're all watching from home. And so it's interesting, as I've talked to other churches, uh, they have commented that uh, they've changed what they're preaching on. And several of them have chosen to go to 1 Peter. And that's where we've been since the beginning of March. And so really excited to be able to go into 1 Peter today, in particular into chapter 2, where we're going to look at verses 6 to 10. I have a question for you. How many of you have ever built a house? Personally, I have never built a house, but I've been a part of two building projects. And so as part of the consideration of building a house or building a church, there must come a moment in time where you decide, we're going to build. And then once you decide what you're going to build, that you're going to build, you have to decide what you're going to build and, and what purpose it serves. And that's where blueprints begin to take shape. So it was seven years ago at LEFC that we began the process of making the decision we're going to build. But then the time of putting in where, what are we going to build and what purpose will it serve? And, and that blueprint you see on the screen is the much work over several years to determine exactly what our needs are and what our purposes are and making sure that we build something that meets that end. But like anything else, once you choose to build, then the resources have to be there. And, and so then there was the season of fundraising. And, and then ultimately, we come to that place where it's time to start building. And where you begin is the ground itself. Now, at LAFC, when we were going to build uh, the church, there was a lot of challenge with the actual foundation. What we found is that there was a lot of bedrock right underneath the soil uh, here where we're putting the current auditorium. And so it required two months of work just to get the ground to the place where we could build a level building. And so in those two months, there were multiple occasions where we had to blast that rock out of the ground. So I decided to give you my favorite video of that season where we were blasting the rock underneath the ground. So enjoy this from home. Now you're probably wondering who are the voices and, and quite frankly that was most of our admin team here at LEFC and the primary voice you were hearing was Ann Unruh uh, and so she's laughing at home now knowing that her voice was uh, being heard across the world uh, but uh, wasn't that fun to watch that rumble and it, I hope it came through like it did here in our auditorium with all these new subwoofers it really shook the room here. Uh, but watching those trees sway uh, was, uh, was part of the joy of that moment. And again, this is all about getting the ground ready for a building to go there. 
But then after you get the ground ready, then it's about establishing the footers. The, the footers are where you put the weight on that aspect deep into the ground so that it can hold up the building. And then you begin to lay the foundation and, and creating the outlines uh, that are as part of that. And then it gets really fun as the steel structure begins to show above the soil. And this is where people began to slow down as they drove by the church when they could start seeing uh, those steel uh, beams going up and being uh, laid across each other. But then you get to that place where you have a finished building. And we were able to enjoy that facility on March 8th. And there was a lot of uh, celebration going on in our halls here. And, uh, and then it was four days later and we discovered we're not allowed to meet in that building anymore. And there was a little bit of uh, air being let out of the balloon, so to speak, for some. It's like, now we don't get to be in this new building. But nothing was like what happened when Jesus was standing outside the temple and talking about it. And saying something that more than let the air out of the balloon, if you will. The occasion was, is that during the lifetime of Jesus, the temple that was there during his time, the Herod's temple, that temple was finished during their lifetime. It took 46 years to build that temple. 46 years of great detail, serving the purpose, laying out the plans, and then doing all the work to set each stone on top of another to create this beautiful temple. And so during the lifetime of those people, they, they had seen that temple be finished, dedicated, and worshipped in, and also sacrifices being made there. But then Jesus says in a passage in Matthew that this temple that they were looking at was going to be torn down. Could you imagine what that must have felt like? You're going to tear down this temple that was 46 years in the making and it's going to fall apart? And Jesus says, yes, this, is, this temple is going to be torn down. That would be like us after March 8th saying, okay, we've got, we've, we're now here, we've built this facility, and by the way, we just got a phone call, somebody's going to come and demolish it sometime in 2020. What would be the emotions you would feel? Probably like, are you crazy? Are you, are you, are you nuts? Are, and then if you can sense that they're being serious, you might actually get angry and defensive and, and then possibly hire somebody to keep them away from the facility. Well, when Jesus makes this comment about the temple at his time, people are angry that he would suggest that that beautiful temple, the glory of Israel, where God meets man, the priest, in that building, that to suggest that it was going to be destroyed was a significant deal. Now, this happened around A.D. 30, where Jesus makes this statement. In A.D. 70, it became a reality. And as Jesus said, no stone would be left on another. Those stones were pushed over by the Romans. And that temple was destroyed. And I was there 18 months ago and got to see those stones. And there's an image that is up on your screen now of those stones that are still lying there today, all these years later, of where the Romans had pushed it over in AD 70. And what Jesus had said came to fruition, that no stone was left upon another. So the great nightmare for that audience to hear 
that this temple was going to be destroyed, the one that they worked so hard on in completing is truly going to see, be destroyed. Jesus made another radical statement more than likely over a year later when he says that if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. If you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, people are immediately thinking back to possibly when Jesus said that this temple will be destroyed. And so they're immediately assuming that he's talking about a physical structure. And, and they respond, it took us 46 years to build this. How in the world can you rebuild it in three days? You can read this later in John chapter 2 of how Jesus responds to them. But the, clearly the audience at the time in John 2, they didn't understand that now Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple that they were looking at, but rather talking about his own body. See, Jesus just changed the meaning of temple. He moved it from a physical structure to something that is spiritual. That no longer, when he refers to it as being something physical, but rather now spiritual, and it's going to be in human form, that they were not able to understand this until after his resurrection. That his temple was destroyed, and on the third day, it was rebuilt. So Jesus is building a picture by which he is going to do something new with the church. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we looked at last week, in the first four verses, uh, Pastor Joel was sharing about this idea of little stones that are being built into a spiritual household. So when Peter's speaking of this idea of little stones that are being built into a spiritual household, this was not a new analogy that Peter was building. In fact, he is building upon that which Jesus had already said, which is that I'm now going to speak of that which is spiritual, not that which is physical. And so Peter now draws upon that language and says that God is building a spiritual household out of little stones and you are those little stones. You are those he is building into a spiritual household. And again, this connects to something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, I will build my church. So Jesus had already said when he was here on this earth, I will build my church. And now Peter's drawing upon that, which is again spiritual, that yes, Jesus is going to build his church and we're the little stones by which he is going to build it and we are going to become this spiritual household. So then the rhetorical questions I'd like to ask is, what will it look like? What will this spiritual household called the church look like? And what will it be built upon? How does it begin? What will be the substance of that church? And what will ultimately hold it all together? These are questions that a builder would ask about anything that is being built. And so as we consider what it means for Jesus to build his church, this text answers every single one of those questions. So let's begin by reading in verse 4 into verse 6 of chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, in this text, Peter brings up this idea of the cornerstone. Now, in the time of Christ and in the time of the early church, the cornerstone was a significant piece of a structure that would be built. And in particular, when you're building a holy structure or a spiritual structure like that of a temple or a place of sacrifice. Literally, in the meaning of this text, in the Greek word, it means head of the corner. So, cornerstone meaning head of the corner, or it's the one that goes first. So, when a cornerstone is put into place in the time of Christ, it was that which was the entire structure would be built upon. The angles would be formed off of that cornerstone. The balance of the building would be resting upon that cornerstone. And the strength or integrity of that building would be determined by the accuracy and the placement of that cornerstone. So the cornerstone was significant. It was the first to go in, but then it became the plumb line, if you will, for the rest of the structure. Everything is built off of its angles, and therefore, the soundness of that structure is determined by how well-placed that cornerstone is. Now, in times of there, the cornerstones look a little different from what they do to today. So that's what an ancient cornerstone would have looked like. It would be ceremoniously laid. And as part of that ceremony, in some of the pagan rituals, they literally would sacrifice a human being, possibly an infant, sometimes an older adult. They would sacrifice them, then place them underneath that cornerstone. And then the cornerstone, once it's placed, there would be some form of ceremony. And then they would begin the rest of the build, the structure. So, obviously, in non-pagan forms, in a Christian form, you would never do that. However, the same thing did kind of happen with Jesus when he was sacrificed and truly became the purification for the church to cover over the sins of this church he's going to build. And so, therefore, it was ceremonially cleansed. And then, as a result, he became the cornerstone by which the church finds its structure. And I'm talking about not the physical structure, but rather the spiritual structure that is found in each person who follows after Jesus. That we are built upon the cornerstone of Jesus. That he becomes literally the angles, the strength that bears up the weight and causes the integrity of that person to stand and that church to stand together. That is what a cornerstone becomes. Now, also in ancient structures was another stone that was placed, and it was called the capstone. The capstone was the final stone put into place. So if the cornerstone went first, by which the structure would be held up, the integrity of the structure would be built, the capstone was the final piece put into place by which it would tie all the pieces together. So the entire structure would come together at the end Final piece goes in, and now it's connected. It is completely tied together. 
So in the same way there was a ceremony for the first stone, there was also for the capstone, the final stone. And so what you'll find in looking at ancient languages is that sometimes the term for cornerstone and capstone were interchangeable because they were both important. One went first, the other one went last, and one, yes, held up the structure and the other one tied it all together. The question that I have is, is that still relevant even today? And, and it is true. Uh, and for those of us that live in Pennsylvania, where I'm currently sitting, we have a very famous logo called the Keystone. And the same thing, a keystone was the final placement in the structure when they would build the old stone homes here in Pennsylvania. The keystone is a more modern version of the capstone. On the right, you will see the, the ancient capstone approach. The final piece put into place to hold that arch together. And so even today, we recognize the capstone as being important. It ties everything together. And so in Pennsylvania, for us, that keystone is what ties an old stone uh, building together. In ancient times, it was the walls, where the temples, and that final stone would be put in. It was very ceremonious, and it was, as a result, what held the structure together. Now, how does this apply biblically? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, it is stated that Jesus is the first and the last, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And so this analogy of a structure being built holds up under in the comparison to Jesus. In that Jesus is the first stone. He lays the foundation of the church by which we are all then as little stones built upon. Our integrity is determined by that cornerstone. And then what holds all of us together, all of our personalities, all the differences between those of us that are within the church... What holds us all together is also Christ. He becomes the final stone that ties it all together. As one commentary says, we rely on Christ much like a building relies on its cornerstone or capstone. So we rely upon Christ much the same way as a building would rely upon its cornerstone or capstone. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, Jesus is before all things and in him... All things are held together. So Jesus is before all things. He goes first. And in him, all things are held together. Therefore, cornerstone and capstone. Now Peter goes on to speak a little bit more on this idea of a spiritual household being built where Jesus is the first and the last. And so let's be, continue reading in verses 7 and eight. It says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But, those, but to those who do not believe, this stone is the, is the stone the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. So to those who believe, Jesus is that cornerstone. But to those who do not believe, it becomes a stumbling stone, a place where one falls. So speaking to that, 
It gives some clues as to the person by which the, the cornerstone is something that causes one to stand. And it begins with this idea and understanding that one must believe in Jesus in order to be standing upon him. So belief being that Jesus is the source by which life can stand. How is that accomplished? Well, going back to when Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days, referring to himself. That temple, again, was the place where man and God could interface. Now, albeit through a chief priest one time a year, it was a place where man could come before God, sacrifice animals so that their sins could be temporarily forgiven, and God could then hear intercessions from that priest on behalf of the people before him. Now, Jesus is saying, that temple's going to go away. He said that in Matthew. And then in John 2, he's now saying, you're going to destroy this temple, referring to himself, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Thus saying, the new temple is going to be built upon Jesus himself. So Jesus becomes that cornerstone by which this new temple will be built, of which he also says, we are going to be those little stones by which that church, the temple, is being built. So for the one who stands upon the cornerstone, that one is one who believes that Jesus is the one who creates the interface between us and God, who then reconciles us to God. The one who, by his sacrifice, covers the multitude of sins that you and I have committed so that by belief in him and trusting in him, then his sacrifice covers over those sins and then allows us the freedom that a priest used to have and being able to come before God without fear or trembling. So that is the person who stands. Now another thing to qualify that belief he also speaks to obedience. So it said at the end of verse 8 that the person who stumbles is the one who disobeys the message about Jesus. Therefore, the implication being, you can't just believe that Jesus is the Son of God and just believe that he died on a cross and rose again on the third day. You can't just believe those things. You have to entrust yourself to it. There are many things you can believe in, but you don't entrust yourself to it. And so the qualifier is a belief that entrusts, a belief that obeys. So this message about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father God except through me. You can believe that statement to be true, but then it's about applying it to your life and saying, it is going to be true for my life. I will make him truly the Lord of my life. I surrender to him as my cornerstone. And then I allow him to cause me to intertwine with the greater church and be built into the church to which he then pulls us all together. So the one who stands is the one who believes and obeys. But then it speaks to the stumble. It's going to also be a stone that causes someone to fall. Now, think about that. If you have heard the gospel message before, this good news message that Jesus has done what is necessary 
to be able to provide a bridge between us and God that we no longer have to fear the wrath of God because of what he's done. That, that trust in that and believing in that causes one to stand. But if I reject that and I disobey that message, I tune it out, I hear it, but I do not apply it. I hear it, but I do not receive it. I hear it and I operate in doubt. Or maybe I hear it and I believe, but I refuse to live by it. It becomes a stone by which we keep tripping over, making us aware that all their paths of life quite frankly, always end in hopelessness. Always show that their end is so short. Always show that there's not wisdom in it. And always show by those patterns of life that do not include Jesus Christ that we're going to keep tripping because life does not offer answers outside of Jesus Christ. And so every time we encounter this message that Jesus is the way, if you keep rejecting it, you keep tripping over it. You keep stumbling and it says you fall. And every time you fall, it's a new opportunity to look at that which you tripped over and look up. I can speak from my own life that it was a stumbling moment. I had known the gospel. I had known this good news about Jesus. I even believed it, but I never trusted in it until I stumbled over it in a manner that caused me to look up to see why did I just trip over this stone? And I realized it's because I was the Lord of my life. I was choosing the patterns of my life. I did not make my life aligned with the cornerstone. And I certainly wasn't tied together to the greater church. And so when I stumbled and I fell hard, then it forced me to look up. And that was the last time I tripped over the cornerstone. Since that point in my life, in my teen years, I've stood on the cornerstone. He holds me up. My life is aligned to him. And he is constructing me every day. And the cool thing is, is I'm being constructed along with the greater church. I am being fabricated and interwoven into a greater church so that I can become strong where I'm weak. This is a beautiful passage for those who believe and obey. But for those who continue to hear and reject, it's a message of warning that you will keep falling over the stone every time you reject. And you will keep falling over it. You'll stumble over it. Only keep be, being made aware once again, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't end the passage there or this thought. In fact, he speaks to the glories that are going to come to those who believe and obey the message of the gospel. And, that, and he uses several terms to describe this church that, that Jesus is building. So let's continue reading in uh, verses 9 and 10. So it says, but you... Again, those of you that are obeying and believing in the messages of Jesus, therefore he's your cornerstone. So you are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
So several descriptors began to take shape as the church is being built. Each of us being chiseled and made into the shape where it fits a part of a greater church. He now refers to us as a chosen people. In other words, a people that, that is revealed through our belief and obedience. We now discover that God has been working in us and choosing us to reveal through us a great construction of a church. Because it's considered a mystery how the various tribes and nations and all the various tongues and genders and, and the personalities that are involved with all that, that somehow this church weaves together beautifully. It's a miracle. And so you can say that it's not by the will of man, but rather by the will of God, a chosen people. This is truly a work of grace. I do not deserve to be part of those living stones. I do not deserve to have the right to stand on the cornerstone. But yet, God's chosen to work in my life, to lead me to a place of belief, and then, then to give me the, the willpower to obey. It's all on him. I could never do it on my own. And so therefore, being a part of this chosen people is an encouragement but then he says royal priesthood. So we're not only a chosen people, but we're a royal priesthood. You see, before the cross, they knew that there was a priesthood. They had a priesthood over them. But after the cross, the beauty of this is that we become the priesthood. We are that priesthood. So therefore, as a result... What used to only be done once a year by the chief priest to go into the presence of God, into that room called the Holy of Holies in the temple, now can be done daily by those who are living stones. Those that are being built into a spiritual household. That we are now given the privilege, because of the work of Jesus, to become priests that can go and interface directly with God. We can worship him. We can speak to him. He can speak to us. And we can be in his presence without fear, without shame. That was a revolutionary idea to the audience in Peter's day. To think of the fact that no longer is it a priesthood that is relegated to the Levite tribe. But now it's for all those who believe and obey the message of the gospel. Have become the priesthood. That would have shaken them in their boots to think such a thought. But the other term attached to priesthood also would have created fear. This idea of a royal priesthood, not just a priesthood, but a royal priesthood, meaning that it's of a royal lineage of the house of kings plus of the house of priests. That was only tried one time in the history of Israel, and it did not go well. When one of the kings chose to behave like a priest, and it angered God. Look up when King Saul tried to do that. When he tried to be priest and king. It did not go well. And so yet, here Peter is saying that we are not only being built into this church. A chosen people. But we become a royal priesthood. Meaning that our lineage is now of royalty. We are related to a king. And we are free to operate as priests. Again, this would not have been easily accepted. But yet, 
it is the very truth of what Jesus provides. Because Jesus becomes our priest. He is the one interceding on our behalf right now. And because he's our cornerstone and our capstone, he's our first and last, our Alpha and Omega, the one that we're built upon and the one that holds us all together. Because he is priest, we are part of the priesthood. And because he is also the king of all kings, we also become of royal heritage. Which then leads to the next descriptor where he says you are now a holy nation not just a nation a church slash nation but a holy nation set apart for a special purpose we're being given a adjective holy that is only ascribed to God and now he says we are this church that is a holy nation a set apart nation for a special purpose So the church is serving for a special purpose as royal priests because we're upon the cornerstone and tied together by the capstone. So then we become this holy nation to perform God's work here on this earth, set apart for a special purpose. And then he concludes with the descriptor, we are God's people, his special possession. You see... Every house that is built comes with a piece of land and it has a deed that is filed in a court somewhere in the county. Same with the land that I'm sitting on right now. There is a deed that establishes that on that deed, it is owned by the people of Lancaster Evangelical Free Church. That's what's names on it. I have a house that is here in Lidditz. On that deed, it says owned by Tony and Kristen Hunt. I also own cars that has a title to it. Says that it's owned by me and my wife. When you look up the deed of your heart, it has the name Jesus Christ. You see, you were purchased and paid for by the work that Jesus accomplished when his temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt in three days. When he died on the cross for your and my sins, it was forever conquered And then gave us life when he came back from the grave. So as a result, you and I are now the possession of Christ. When we believe in what Jesus has done and we obey that message and apply it to our lives, we become the possession of God. Owned by him with the name Jesus over it. So no longer are we known as by our last name, our surnames. No longer are we known by the country we're living in. But we're known as being citizens of heaven, a holy nation, and our possessor is Jesus Christ. So what are the takeaways from this message? First, Jesus wants to build something new out of you. He wants to build something new out of you where his work will transform your life. You must believe that his desire is to do that in your life. And you must entrust yourself to him and allow your life to be conformed to his cornerstone. Let his life be that which forms yours. And then let him then tie you together to the greater church. That's what it means then in the second point is that we must believe and submit to Jesus' leadership. Jesus is meant to be the leader of our life. The cornerstone and the capstone. 
And the only way that can become a transformative work in you is that you believe and you entrust. You obey the work he wants to do in your life and conform your life to him as the cornerstone. And then lastly, as it said in verse 9 at the end of it, as a result of being this chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, he did this so that you can then declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous and wonderful light. You see, you weren't just meant to be made into some spiritual household tied together to a greater church. You were meant to also then become the declarer of this great message. You were called out of darkness if you believed and entrusted yourself to him. But then it gives you the opportunity to then proclaim and declare that God rescued you out of darkness and brought you into incredible light. That's our calling. So Jesus wants to build you into something new. Jesus also can do that when you believe and entrust yourself to him. And lastly, it's our opportunity to proclaim. Others are in darkness, just like you and I were. Or maybe you still are. I'm declaring to you now, there is light on the other side. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, I now know how to walk. I know how to give, have purpose in my life. I know who to align myself to. So before we go from this broadcast now, I want to encourage you to have some time to discuss with those that are in the room with you now. First of all, I would love for you to reread 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And choose which of those descriptions of the church meant the most to you this morning. So each person in the room, choose one of them. And to say why that meant a lot to you. Was it special to you to hear that you were a chosen person? A royal priesthood? A holy nation? Or God's special possession? And enjoy that time sharing from each other's heart how that impacted you. Secondly, what does it look like to make Jesus the first and last in your life? What does it look like to make Jesus your first and your last? He as your cornerstone and the capstone. What does that look like for you? And lastly, considering the end of verse 9, how can you then shine the light of Christ to those who are still walking in darkness. How can you do that? Especially right now, while we're all stuck in our homes. How can we be able to broadcast that light and proclaim the light of Christ? That might take some creativity on your part, for sure. Now, my last point is for children. If you've been able to stay with me this long, I want to encourage you to do something unique with your Legos. Write on a piece of paper a picture of a building you want to build with your Legos. Create a blueprint. Then take your Legos and begin to build that house. But I want you to start with the first block and label it as the cornerstone. What's going to be the cornerstone by which you build the entire structure from? And, and take a moment to pray as you put that first stone down, that first Lego. And then when you put the final piece in, thank Jesus for tying it all together. Choose to do that this afternoon with your Legos. And then have fun putting all those Legos back into their sets. Having said that, let me close in prayer now. 
to ask for God to bless your time of conversation. So God, I just say, would you into each household do something special? Maybe forming anew each household <laughs> in a manner where they are aligned more to Christ. That they're not aligned by the worldly pursuits, but aligned to what is more upon your heart. The purposes by which you would love for them to be individually and as a family. And Lord, would you also then help them to be creative on what it means to proclaim this good news, especially right now. And Lord, I want to pray now for those who are still in darkness that have never made Jesus their cornerstone. They've believed, but maybe they've never allowed you to truly lead their life. Give them the strength. Speak to their hearts now to step up in boldness and for once and forever stand on the cornerstone instead of falling over. So Lord, do your work in the homes and maybe even as the children build with their Lego blocks this afternoon, may that even lead to a spiritual moment they will never forget. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, and may God lead your conversations now as a household. Look forward to talking to you again on Wednesday. God bless.